0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: The ins and outs of Brexit, whether it is happening, not happening, what's happening, Uh, The huge story of the day, certainly in the United Kingdom and for much of Europe, but in the U.S. today, everybody's talking about the banks, the second round of Fed stress tests out yesterday, and it's a little bit like Lake Wobegon, where uh, all the men are uh, pretty and all the women are strong and the children above average. Everybody passed in the U.S. this time. Uh, A couple of foreign banks didn't quite get there. We're going to talk about that now with Brad Hintz because, of course, he is the man, the CEO, uh, the, the uh, I'm sorry, Stern Business School finance professor, not CEO of Stern Business School, of course, but uh, the former 20, CFO, 20. what I meant to say, of <laughs> several banks and longtime bank analysts. He joins us now. And, Brad, um, Yeah, obviously, the bank's got to be happy, but the Fed has to be happy, too, because they did set a rather – tough bar rather high bar in the uh, adverse stress scenario and basically everybody cleared it in terms of capital adequacy
2: well that's exactly right so if we think of the stress test the stress test is a swiss army knife that the fed uses right and one of the uses of the uses of the swiss army knife is public relations so in the midst of, of brexit the fed is able to say u.s banks are solid and that helps works well with the press, and it works well with the public, and it works well on Capitol Hill. And, you know, and yes, they also, they stressed the banks, and they did well. The banks have been getting much better at taking this test, and part of that is they've reversed engineered a lot of the Fed Well, models.
1: there's a good question. Is it that they're getting better at meeting the Fed's requirement, or they're getting better at
2: knowing how to take the test? Well, it's a combination of both right i mean we can we can mathematically look at the at at the balance sheets the banks are just much stronger than they've been in years but on the other hand if you take this test over a period of time despite the fact that the scenarios change all the time you're just going to get better you're going to know how the fed models are going to work and if you see your internal models are different than the fed models you're going to do everything you can to get them together so that so w- that when you say the answer you're going to be close to what the professor tells you is the real answer and and that's you know, what we're seeing
0: when, when when you look at these banks, one of the ideas, and you're not doing buy, hold, sell anymore, but we're hearing from a lot of people in the street that a great cash flow awaits. Is this the day where you have more confidence that these banks will have ample cash flow to move to shareholders through dividend growth and share buyback where they get beyond being quasi-utilities?
2: Well, Tom, you've got, you know, you've got banks that are proposing combined payout ratios of near 100%. So in essence, your buybacks and your dividends are going to pay out everything that you earn. So you know, what that'll do is that will do is, again, if we think about it from an equity point of view, it's reducing the discount because you know here we have a group right. of banks that are outbeating their cost of capital that are generating unacceptable returns but if you can get high dividends off of them that that you you may find that still an acceptable investment on the other hand if you're paying out more than 100% of what you've got, or one hundred percent, you don't have a lot of growth, and so you know. Un- unfortunately, we have an industry that's still in transition. It's been a long transition now, right? We're in the eighth year of a, of the transition, of, you know, from the from, from the crisis. But will they trans? Will they transition over the next eighteen
0: months to two years to cash flow generators that? Give it back to shareholders. That's the thesis well, of Optimism the, the, Yes, the street. exactly.
2: And that's that's what you're seeing yeah. with the stress test. The stress test allows them to, to to return more capital. You can prove that you can you can live through a very, very difficult scenario. And you can you, you can execute your, your your capital proposals. All of them are asking to, to give back more capital. I don't, you know, unfortunately, that leads us in the direction of a utility. You know, exactly. what are utilities? They, they pay back. Yeah. They They don't generate great returns, but they do pay off.
1: Are, are the banks handicapped in any way by the efforts that they have made to meet the requirements of the test? Are they making fewer loans because of that, or making less money because of that?
2: Yes, the, uh, there the stress test CCar yeah. is uh, is the binding constraint on the banks, and you've you've had J.P. Morgan say that, Morgan Stanley, Goldman say that. Uh, if the 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 analogy I've used in the past is that. The stress test is like one of those invisible fences that people put up for their dog, and 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 then each night. Excuse
0: me, they never worked.
2: <laughs> well, keeps it, you in the studio. It, oh, it, we're it, acting it, very John Tucker like <laughs> on this. Just call a dog. <laughs> Well, you know, each each year the Fed goes and it digs up the invisible fence and it moves it around so that the, 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 the poor banks who are out in the backyard really don't know where they're going to get shocked. And and, and unfortunately, what that means is you don't go anywhere near the stress tests. So you're always maintaining surplus capital that pulls down your ROEs. You're always maintaining you know, surplus liquidity that pulls down your ROEs.
0: I want to get this in, Brad. I think it's too important for our global Wall Street audience. We talked earlier – about the idea away from tangible book value of the European banks and the share prices is just getting so low. The behavioral idea of debt versus equity, Medigliana and Miller and the rest of it. Forget about the theory about it. There's a point where the thing breaks is tangible book value comes down and down and down. We're seeing tangible books in European banks where there's almost an accelerative force of lack of confidence. How do you know when you get there, or do you just not be able to predict a drop in confidence in a banking system?
2: Well, we don't have a funding r- problem going on right now. That's the I've heard I heard right? that
0: before, Lehman.
2: Okay. Well, all right. But you know, do you see the government? You know, do you do you do you see corporate bonds trading and equity trading? We still have a liquid liquid market, so we're not we're not we don't have that kind of a crisis yet. But you're asking you're asking a question: Is there a price that banks have value? Of course, they are. You know, Deutsche is not going away. UBS is not going away. Agreed. Barclays is not going away, um, and and you can as an equity analyst i remember an analysis that i'm sure the portfolio managers are doing today the analysis is as you drop below in, in lower and lower levels of price to tangible book your beta the volatility on a down movement is less than the beta on the upside because you know because the banks are nearing a liquidation value I mean, no matter how you, what kind of uh, of onerous no. assumptions you in, they're at a liquidation value. So, so it <clears> says that the banks become one way trades at some point. Where you know, I, we have to be close to this, but you know, that's that's a call of an equity analyst that it has to make.
0: It's very difficult on the Bloomberg. Just a quick look, and there's many book values. Deutsche Bank, zero point two eight. That's stunning. That number, and that's Deutsche Bank, uh, the Italian. You know, and base. that says they
2: will never yeah. make money again.
0: JP Morgan had operating income before the crisis, which is massively expanded within all the US banking workout. And there's a presumption by many analysts that they will distribute cash flow to shareholders. This morning, I can own a 5.7% yield on BMP Paribas with some currency issues with the euro. It's extraordinary how they are differently structured than our banks to be high-dividend cash machines, granted, with not all that much growth. J.P. Morgan has a growth. BNP Paribas does not have the growth. But BNP Paribas got that massive coupon. Which do I want philosophically?
2: <laughs> okay. I'm trying to ask in a professorial way. Sure. The um, uh – BNP Paribas is is smaller on the capital market side there's no question about that and that's probably one of the very good things and JPM is the leading is 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 conventional wisdom is JPM is one of the winners out of the uh, out of the crisis so i mean what you're you're really buying two different things right you're buying you're you're buying a, a BNP Paribas with the the idea that it it the commercial banking business fundamentally is a good business, and a capital markets business can't drag it down too far, right? I mean, that— that, that And JPM, you're betting that Jamie will be the winner of the war of attrition. So, I mean, they're, they're, you, you, you're, they're not con- totally comparable, right? I mean, BNP Paribas is not attempting to be the glo- a global capital markets bank okay. anymore.
0: Well, what about if I barbell it by equal amounts of both— And I believe out of the box, I generate a four and a half or more coupon I've got a cash flow machine in Paris and I got Mr. Diamond running around with his head cut off being Fortress Diamond.
2: Well, Tom, you're getting <clears> back <throat> just, to the idea of is there a price that banks look look attractive? Yeah. yeah, there 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 always is. I mean, it's it's you know, it's as an academic, you know, you talk about cost of you know, cost of ca- capital, you talk about ROE's, but as a portfolio manager, one looks at it and says, right. you know, I can hold Mike, my nose and buy something. Can
0: we start a rumor this morning that J.P. Morgan will buy BNP Paribas? <laughs>
2: Would that work? <laughs> well, after the Fed stress tests, right? Right.
0: <laughs> somebody asked Mr. me. Mr. Hollande will have a stress uh, test.
2: Somebody asked me what
1: the, uh, what the major takeaway I had from the stress test was. And I thought about it for a minute. I thought, you know, given the size of the projected losses that could happen, you know, the, the Fed's uh, academic exercise in, in how much each bank could lose. <laughs> Jamie Morgan is just a Goliath. I mean, the amount of money they could lose is higher than the GDP
2: well, of a lot of countries. and and if you if you think about it, what we've done is we've made the credit of the banks spectacular. I mean, these are boy, everybody should own the bonds of the banks. You know, they're 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 bulletproof. Well, you know, Good, we morning, did
0: a, good morning, Chris Whalen, who's been yeah. way out front on that. <laughs> we Continue.
1: should we we should ask about the other uh, foreign banks, not BNP Paribas, which was not stress tested, but uh, the the ones on the list. Uh, The stress tests aren't as comparable to them, and most of these are are smaller U.S. subsidiaries. And we we made the point this morning that this is not Deutsche Bank that failed. This is a tiny little part of a smaller U.S. part of Deutsche Bank. That's all going to change in a week. Well, Friday, uh, when they all become uh, their own holding companies, how does that affect what the foreign banks can do, will
2: do, and and are, and what they need to do, regulatory. Well, you as you you're well aware, you're going to end up having to capitalize these U.S. subsidiaries. Uh, I, uh, uh, I I I need to do a, a, a true confession on the uh, here, which is I remember as a corporate treasurer and as a CFO having subsidiaries with negative equity in them negative equity, in order to allow your, the, the double leverage of the company, the equity of the holding company compared to the equity of all the subs, to look very good. And uh, You wouldn't what, want to note which
1: bank that was.
2: <laughs> I, uh, now, now, of course, uh, I, I, you know, I have found religion, and I, I don't <laughs> do that anymore. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, did, did the test tell you anything about the foreign banks that we should even take away from this? Um, Well, remember, the stress tests are done for a lot of the reasons, right? They're done for the PR reasons. They're done for, you know, good stress tests. I mean, so fundamentally, these are solid tests. But, you know, they're also done to pop bubbles. So the Federal Reserve has a wonderful um, uh, ability to, if they don't like something, they can stress it. And if you're a bank and they see a bubble developing, essentially they can use it as a macro Economic tool too, so I mean, that's why the, the stress tests are the binding constraint could, for 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 all of the banks, right? We you know the Fed could be making a, could be trying to to run a, an an economic. Issue of trying to solve a rec- an economic issue for the for the country in advance of it turning into a crisis, and the cost would be lower returns on the banks. And so, you know, unfortunately, CCAR is very costly for the banks. It it pushes down the ROEs, makes it very difficult yeah. to find the optimal. <clears throat> Mix of businesses, because you never know what the stress is going to be.
0: 30 seconds. What will the American regionals do? We've been too big to fail this morning. What are the banks
2: just below them do? PNC and the rest of them.
0: Because the, that's where the M&A is going to happen, right?
2: You're arguing that the number of banks is going to shrink. Yes, the number of banks is going to shrink, but i but they they can't allow the larger banks to uh, to get bigger. I mean, so the regionals
0: to, merge and make for yeah, a new so, larger. So you bank. know,
2: a we, we have a new N C. We make a BNP right, 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 we, we in America, a, somebody some someone in that group be, is is an N C N B of the old days that becomes a nation. I can bank see M T right, exactly.
0: Financial in Buffalo. One of the best banks in the world. They could be the next BMP Paribas. Brad Hintz, thank you so much.
1: Chris Rupke is with us, though. He's Bank Tokyo Mitsubishi. He's a good
0: person to talk to right uh, now yeah, about yield dynamics. Uh,
1: do you have an opinion on jobless claims? I mean, it, we're, we're clearly n- not seeing problems in the labor market.
3: Yeah, I mean, they don't have a lot of informational value. I know uh, Federal Reserve has had lectures down there, the policy officials pushing back on the idea that it's a leading indicator of the economy, initial unemployment claims. But at this point, you know, it's very sensitive. And at this point, it can only tell us what's, you know, going wrong. And this morning, with claims up uh, just a little bit off the... uh, Well, the the lowest level of claims since the 1970s, you know, 248,000, so we're only 20,000 above that. I know it sounds like a lot of people applying for unemployment because they've been laid off in just one week, but it's actually good times for the economy. Anyway, nothing's going wrong yet. I mean, I think it's a fair thing that, you know, Brexit has alarmed people in a way I haven't seen – Since, really, uh, the Lehman shock in 2008, I think people went a little overboard about what those risks from Brexit mean here for the U.S. But, uh, you know, so it's a fair game. We want to see if companies are concerned enough not just to cut production but to, um, you know, lay off workers and nothing's happening, although it's only been one week, arguably. You might be interested. I went to my Economist Club uh, meeting yesterday, the Forecasters Club which I'm going to be president of next year. Thank you. Nice shameless plug. Well done. <laughs> hope, your con-
0: hope your convention is better than the one in Cleveland. No, nice but I just messaged, we,
3: we, we went around the table about what Brexit means for the U.S. It's just U.S. economists, although there's European bank economists there yeah. as well. Anyway, uh, two said nothing. Two said it was going to drag GDP 0.1 or 0.2 percentage point. One said 025 to 0.5% drag on GDP. So, you know, not that much of an impact on GDP anyway.
0: But one of the things that's nuanced here very quickly, Chris Rupke, is the idea from uh, Sir Howard Davies today that he shared your optimism. But he said, look, you've had a one-time move in sterling. I mean, that's got to help British exports, right?
3: I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's been what it's. At this point, it's, what, 10% move yeah. uh, from a fifty. I don't know if that changes. Uh, I guess that's going to have an impact. Yeah, but, I mean, some of the uh, companies in Europe have already complained about the change in the exchange rate. I mean, it, it's 10%. It's not 20% yet, but, uh, yeah, it could have yeah. an impact. Christopher, uh,
0: I, I want to talk about the economic data we get to July eight in the labor report i believe the last labor report mike would you call it a little shaky little and there's yeah, a lot of term. there's a lot of optimism to 2.5 or better gdp how do you dovetail a shaky labor report with a better us economic growth which one's which one's got the trend right
3: always look on the bright side of life it's whatever the data the stronger data takes that one yeah it's a little weird isn't it Um, yeah real real consumer expenditures yesterday we got it for may i mean it looks like uh, consumers shot the lights out in the second quarter april through may it's running four percent you know we talk about a two percent gdp world where that's kind of subpar in most people's minds, but here you have the consumer roaring out at four percent. It's quite odd. <clears throat> I think what I uh, finally detected in uh, Janet Yellen's testimony, though, was that she was starting to warn off people a little about what the slowdown in payroll jobs actually mean. I mean, they go back and forth on of it on this. Some of their some of the Fed governors are worried about what it means, but you know, at some point we're at full employment you know unemployment rate's 4.7% it's not just because people are dropping out of the labor force i don't see people panhandling in the streets of new york well maybe i do but you know i mean we're at full employment so the idea here is that jobs are going to slow right it's going to run like 170,000 on average for the rest of the year something like that i mean you know last month's number 30,000 plus you know was weak but uh, I don't think you want to think that the economy is going downhill like recession-like sort of stuff.
1: What do you think our growth rate in the second quarter is going to be?
3: Well, I guess I had to pump it up a little uh, after 4% real uh, consumer spending. We kind of have two economies right now where business investment suffering a little, although exports came back, that was good. Uh, But business investment's slowing. So I don't know, something near 3.0, maybe barely touching 3.0. Well, I had 2.6, so uh, consumption was strong. We'll we'll see what happens with some of the durable goods data later on. As I said, it looks like exports are finally uh, at least stabilizing and won't be a drag that uh, the strong dollar impact and slower world growth that was supposedly bringing down our exports. And they did come down quite a bit. It looks like we're kind of leveling off there after a decline, so that's good news, pre-Brexit, of course.
1: As of today, <laughs> yes. The, uh, well, the this is actually yesterday, uh, the, uh, last night, yeah, the night Fed GDP now is 2.7%, so you're, you're in the ballpark there.
3: Yeah, but, you know, one interesting thing I just put up on the Bloomberg Professional Service. uh, Oh, I I like it. He does
1: really well with these plugs.
3: (laughs) And and MUFG, of course. You know, go team MUFG. Anyway, I put up uh, the Dow Jones Stock Index GP graph price monthly, GPM for the Dow Industrials. I mean, put that up. Where is the financial market turmoil here in the U.S.? That there's nothing going on. This is not a stock market crisis from Brexit. I mean, it's come back. I think people are exaggerating this uh, problem in the, for, the, for the U.S. markets at, at this point. Anyway, prices have not come down. Year-to-date, the Dow's up 1.5%. I mean, how is that a crisis?
1: Well, it's not up 20%, I suppose, is what a lot of people after the last couple of years would say.
3: Yeah, I I guess so. Actually, I was noticing as well, you look at some of these central bank policies where they keep pushing and pushing and pushing. I think Draghi is going before the German parliament in September, I believe. Anyway, if you look at, you know, what's going on in Germany? Very strong economy, but their stock market's down 10%, and they got negative rates. I mean, how do you explain that to the, the people? I don't know. It's an interesting time.
0: Chris Rupke, thanks so much. Greatly appreciate it. Bank of Tokyo, Mitsubishi. And of course, the Grateful Dead, when getting you get ready last time for the, the Dead on this show? The Fourth of July weekend. We got to right get God. ready with the Grateful Dead, and for that, we need to go to the official surveillance deadhead Douglas Cass of Seabreeze Partners. Good morning, sir,
4: Professor Keene, I thought you were more of a mellow Crosby, Stills, Nash and guy, but when I heard "Heads All Empty," "Heads All Spinning," I was thinking "Sugar Magnolia." I have a great honor of Stephen
0: Stills, and I, you know, I'll listen to my Yo Yo Ma at the time. Uh, but it really talks about. Remember the dead? They were priced to perfection. You couldn't get tickets,
4: and the, then they, and then the uh, the sea prices collapsed.
0: Yeah, and the sea prices collapsed, and they went on to do other things. It reminds me
4: of uh, the overseas bond market.
0: Are you are you going to say, Doug Cass of Seabreeze Partners? Are you going to say that Brexit is an exogenous shock that will unhinge the equity markets after what we've seen the last three days of recovery?
4: I'm going to say that. That Friday's vote will likely lead to an unraveling of the EU, that it will lead to a dampening of global economic and profit growth. And I think that Brexit is far more corrosive than we saw from, say, the Greek crisis and other economic, uh, political and geopolitical issues that have emerged in recent years.
0: John Micklethwaite, uh, editor-in-chief of Bloomberg News, Michael McKee out with a really cautious essay. Lovely, lovely essay today, somewhat alluding to Mr. Cass's uh, words.
1: Well, he's uh, wondering if the period we just saw in Great Britain was the exception, rather, uh, than the rule. Uh, But when you say unraveling of the EU, Doug, to what? That would be the... The bottom line question. I mean, do, are you saying we go all the way back to the mid twentieth century, or do we just go no, back just to think the European be, Community?
4: It, it, it's going to be. Um, we're going It's going to lead to just simply a, a great deal of uncertainty. Many people are saying, for example, that this won't be imposed for several years, and I, and I take the uh, the contrary in view that the longer you wait, the more uncertainty. Um, I, I recently wrote in the street that. Um, that the movie the big chill is is kind of a metaphor for last week's brexit vote basically the voters in england decided to abandon the the union and this follows decades of cohesion in europe and a, and a broader trend of globalization that flourished back in the 1990s and the early 2000 and and led us to all this great global trade and it was born out of the ashes of right. you know world war 2 and it's been a pillar of global disorder And it's sort of like the characters in The Big Big Chill. In the 1960s, everything was cool then. They were chilled and mellow, but just... And then Alex committed suicide in the 70s. And in the 80s, the film's characters confronted all this violent change. So I think the world order that the EU represents suddenly is facing right. a major major upheaval. But then take
0: that over to major multinationals in Europe. If they are multinationals, are they within your caution or are they discreet and separate? It can work removed from, those, from that turbulence.
4: No, I think it's going to lead to... Uh, um a great deal of problems for let's say for example the european european bank industry you and i and mike discussed um my view that that uh, deutsche bank about two weeks ago on your program is um is the greatest risk to contagion and systemic failure it's even greater than aig was in 2006. um so i think that you know the european banks are now in more more and more trouble i think the the prospect for lower for longer Uh, will threaten. their already punk profits. And, you know, they're exposed more than ever to poor management, ridiculously high leverage, uh, opaque derivatives, uh, crappy reporting. And I think as it relates to multinationals, I think that um, the flight to safety that we see in the lower interest rates is going to result in a strengthening in the greenbacks of the multinationals uh, will face, um, you know, big currency headwinds in front of them. So with a rising percentage of S&P profits based upon EU and, and, and overseas uh, geographies, this is going to be problematic.
1: Do you see the euro going away? We have had a couple people on the program this week that's the question whether it can stand.
4: Uh, you know something? When I'm not a, a specialist on an area like currencies, I really don't talk much about it. I feel well, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm more like Jeff Spicoli in uh, Fast Times at Ridgewood. Uh, <laughs> Hi, high, high when he says to Mr. Han, I simply don't know.
1: Well, I mean, I, I'm not asking about the value. I'm just talking about the existence of it.
4: Yeah, I think that that it's, that it's clearly in jeopardy. And I think that correlations are now moving to one, and we're a very leveraged system. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that if we look at the second half of, of, of 2016 at the markets, it will depend importantly on how Brexit progresses, right. on how the bond market acts, <clears throat> how bank stocks, you know, right. 3Bs, banks, Brexit, and bonds. And I think we lead to a big chill okay. or to invoke the dead, broke-down palace.
1: Well, speaking of broke-down palace, we're talking about um, the – political and uh, economic situation in Europe, but uh, things almost seem as bad or worse here in politics, Doug. Uh, How much of that are you concerned about in terms of its impact on the markets? It doesn't seem to be worrying Wall Street a whole lot at the moment.
4: There is this general view that gridlock is a positive, but given the uh, impotency of um, monetary policy at a zero level, um, and a, a reduced effectiveness at best, and maybe it's value destructive because of the paradox of thrift and disadvantaging savings. I'm concerned that um, with president uh, with uh, Hillary Clinton likely to win in kind of a dramatic fashion, moving the Senate over to the Democrats, but because of the large lead of Republican um, in House incumbents over uh, Democratic in- incumbents, not likely to change majority rule of Republicans in the House, that we're going to have gridlock, and that's exactly what we don't need. We need, we don't need more gridlock and fiscal inertia. So I think that will be market unfriendly.
1: But you wouldn't think that the alternative is possible that uh, there would be some sort of fiscal activity to stimulate the
4: economy. No, I know it. Not under the um, appearance of gridlock, more gridlock and um, just severe partisanship, which seems to get worse by the day and will, obviously, as we move closer to the election.
0: Doug, I want to push back. We've got a, a lousy first quarter. Consensus is on a relative basis good, if on an absolute basis soggy. It's not morning in America, but it's better. And the number one thing, and you and I have seen this over decades, corporations have a wonderful ability to adapt. So if cash flows are more resilient, earnings more resilient, are you just suggesting that we see a compression in multiples? Do well, we've impress? seen an
4: expansion of multiples um, in a dramatic manner, certainly over the last two or three years. Yes. If we look back, um, Tom, maybe 18 months, 20 months ago, um, Earnings estimates for the S and P this year were probably twenty dollars a share higher than where they're going to come in. So we've obviously seen an expansion of multiples. Um, But um, you know, I don't, I don't believe in this relative value concept. That, um, for example, that corporations are going to be able to prosper in a low top line environment. Mm -hmm. Just like I don't believe. In the notion that the U.S. will be an oasis, prosperity. I don't believe that. In the notion that stocks are, because they're cheap relative to bonds, means that there's value in stocks or that bonds, bonds are cheap. Uh, the ten-year is cheap at one fifty percent yield versus the ten-year German bond at negative twelve basis points. It's like saying, you know, uh, Alexander Rodriguez of the New York Yankees who is hitting two twenty is a value to the Yankees, because Mark Teixeira has an even worse batting average of 190. Uh, or to put it in your home base in the Boston Red Sox, you send a, your left fielder Holt is batting 235, but Vasquez, your catcher, is batting 210, and Holt's not providing much value to the team.
0: <laughs> Did you see how ruthless he is? You it's know just, i get the Red Sox. He's just now. ruthless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't
4: know how I was going to, but I did. He to they're, do just, that very they're, well. they're
0: doing the third week of April in June. That's how I would <laughs> put it. Uh, Doug Cass, on gold, then. I mean, if we Red have a cautious road, view yeah. of equities, uh, do you find value in gold or in commodities as a general statement?
4: I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was you or, or Mike who said they don't know the. Have Mike any said it. Yeah. Uh, Mike said, right. I, I feel the same way. I think that gold is like religion. E- either you believe in God or you don't. Either you believe in gold or you don't. I can't, I can't value as an analyst, as a fundamental analyst, what the intrinsic value of gold is. So if gold were to have, for example, I don't know if I'm getting value by doubling down.
1: Well, it's, it's uh, why buy it? Because it's going up. That, that seems to be the only rationale, which means then you've got to be a market timer.
4: We've seen, like, this, this transformation over history. You know, I always ask myself, who is the dominant investor these days? When I started in the business in the early 70s, it was the bank trust departments, and they one decision stocks. But today it's the machines and algos who allocate um, their portfolio based upon uh, risk, not asset class. Um, that's why the market has no memory from day to day. That's why market mm. moves are exaggerated over the short term. That's why buyers live higher and sellers uh, live lower in our brave new investment world. So I think what this does is that it renders charts and technical analysis less valuable. It ruins the charts. Yeah. Um, it exaggerates stuff. Like, look, on Friday and Monday, stocks dropped. The VIX exploded. The machines were sellers. Tuesday and Wednesday, stocks soared. The VIX. Collapse,
0: I strongly, I strongly, worldwide. Doug, agree with that. The action of the VIX correlated the equities recently has been odd. Right to say, Doug Cass, thank you so much with Seabreeze. Thank for having me. Uh, always uh, our great pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.